Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Paul Fidak, who is a cardiac surgeon, translational scientist, and organizational leader at the Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Uh, Dr. Fidak is committed to the innovation and translation of new surgical therapies for patients with advanced heart disease. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Gil. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. Um, you have said in the past that there are not and there will never be enough donor hearts to treat all the people with advanced heart failure. Uh, as an example, less than 200 heart transplants are performed each year in Canada. Now, last year, um, University of Calgary researchers, including yourself, discovered a new way to treat heart disease. Uh, you found a new cell with the potential to heal the heart. Uh, and this is related to immune cells surrounding the hearts of mice are found in people uh, too. And those cells reduce the scarring in damaged hearts and promote healing. You want to talk a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we, what you brought up with the lack of donor organs, um, well, let me just take a step back on that. Yeah. So, you know, with heart, you know, as you probably know, heart disease is often the number one killer uh, of people, particularly in uh, North America. And we really need better ways to treat people with heart disease. And we have great, we have great medicines, we have great preventative strategies, and we've made a lot of impact if you look over the years in um, you know, survival after heart attacks and, and outcome. We've done a really good job. So people are, are living with injured hearts, but the problem is you survive your heart attack, but your heart develops some scar tissue and it doesn't work quite as well, right? It's not as strong. So what people are developing is a syndrome called heart failure. So we've got a lot of walking wounded with heart disease that we're keeping them going, but they've got heart failure. And heart failure is a really bad problem. And really when you have end stage heart failure, the only way that we really can effectively treat that when it gets really bad is to do a full organ transplant. And of course you need someone to die and donate a healthy organ in order to do uh, a heart transplant surgery. Yeah. So that we're always going to be limited because the need outstrips the supply. So people are really interested in finding other ways to uh, address this problem. And one of them is people started to think many years ago that, well, do we really need to transplant the whole heart? You know, if it's just parts of the muscle that are damaged and sick, why do we need an entire heart, right? The valves are okay. Some of the blood vessels are okay. Maybe the right heart works well, but not the left part of the heart. So people started to develop the concept of cell therapy. And could, you know, could we transplant individual cells instead of the whole heart and improve heart function? And that field, um, you know, I've been working in that field for, you know, 25 years. And we haven't really seen, you know, the impact we would have liked to have seen after all the promise of cell therapy. And it may be just that we haven't found the right types of cells and the right approaches. Um, and our work 
has been really interesting in that we found a new cell that no one knew about before and it's actually not in the heart it just surrounds the outside of the heart so if you can imagine your heart it's encased in a fibrous sac called the pericardium and between the heart and that fibrous sac is a fluid called pericardial fluid <laughs> and no one's really thought too much about this sac, um, you know, in surgery, we open that sac, we suck that fluid out, it goes straight into the garbage, we do our surgery, and then sometimes we close that sac, sometimes we don't, we don't really think too much of it. And it, lo and behold, our work suggests that that sac and that fluid is full of immune cells that can actually help repair your heart. So we published a paper on this and did some extensive work showing, you know, in mouse models and correlating that with pigs and actually taking human pericardial fluid and demonstrating that these cells exist. And what they do is they seem to home to the heart after injury and prevent some of the scar tissue from forming. And really the problem with the heart, uh, unlike other organs, is it doesn't really regenerate and heal itself very well. It heals itself by turning muscle into scar. And of course, scar can't contract, it can't beat. It can't contribute to heart function. So it's a real problem. It's different from say, if you lose a bit of your skin, it can just kind of grow back. Um, you know, you, yeah. you, you lose some hair, it grows back. Um, the heart doesn't have that regenerative potential. So it's really critical that we understand how the heart repairs itself and try to get the heart to be less what we call fibrogenic. So less repairing in terms of making scar tissue and more adaptive reparative in terms of preserving the muscle and making new blood vessels to encourage the heart to heal without loss of function. And then we won't have so many patients with heart failure. So that's kind of why we're excited about these cells that we've identified because potentially they might unlock a new therapy for patients where we could inject these previously unknown cells, which may affect a more adaptive and healthier repair. So this is this what you call the cardiac fibroblast or is it something different? It's something different. So okay. cardiac fibroblasts are really important because they are the um, scar producing cells in the heart. So there's a lot of fibroblasts. And when your heart is injured, two things happen. There's two cell types that come into the site of injury and affect a repair. And one of the cells is called fibroblasts. And what they do is they create scar tissue and they contract the wound, they strengthen it so that it doesn't rupture. Because you can imagine if you had a weak area of your heart, you wouldn't want the blood to rupture out, that would be fatal. So the, the scar tissue is really important to initially provide some mechanical support, but it's at the cost of creating this non-contractile scar tissue. And at the same time, you get inflammatory cells and they come in and they start cleaning up the mess. So they will take away all the dead cells and the debris and uh, start cleaning things up. So both fibroblasts and immune cells are really the two key players from a cellular level in terms of repair. And we study both in my lab. We're, we're very interested in both cell types and we're actually really interested right now in how those cells may interact together because we think they play a really dynamic role interacting with each other to affect repair. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, Paul, so there is sort of a tactical response to uh, an injury and that is that is basically trying to repair it. And in the process, uh, it creates scarring and that, that sort of reduces the long-term viability in some ways. Um, whereas the cells that you're talking about uh, could potentially uh, either reduce the scarring or, or or really help repairing repair it in more uh, more viable fashion in the long run. Yeah, because you know, Gil, there's what we find in different organs and different tissues is there's different pathways to repair. Yeah, and this fibrogenic or scar forming pathway seems to get highly activated in the heart. And probably that's an adaptive mechanism because the heart has to continue working so hard all the time, it can never stop beating. And if there was any mechanical disruption in the heart wall, like we said, it would be fatal. So probably because of adaptive mechanisms, this 
fibrosis pathway is highly activated in the heart, but it's not the only way muscle can heal or tissue can heal. So what we need to figure out is, are there other ways that we can convince the heart to activate some non-fibrogenic repair mechanisms? Obviously we still need some degree of scar formation, but maybe the key here is to get some early scar formation and then shut that off because yeah. What we, right, what we find is, and this is really key in all of biology and physiology, is most mechanisms that are put in place are very smart, they're highly intelligent, and they're put in place to be adaptive. The problem is that over a long period of time, they can go from being adaptive to maladaptive. And I think that's probably what happens in heart tissue. So when you um, have an injury to the heart, usually a heart attack, you will develop this scar tissue and it doesn't effectively shut itself off very well. So you continually develop more and more scar and eventually it goes from adaptive to maladaptive and you get into this heart failure syndrome. The heart starts to change its structure and then the function starts to uh, reduce over time and then you get into the heart failure problem. So it's really a matter of timing um, and it's a matter of um, context. So all of these processes are highly contextual, you know, in the right place and the right time, they are very effective and very important. But if they go out of their timing window or out of their anatomic window, they can be um, dangerous. So it's a matter of trying to coax the heart to do the right thing for the right period of time. So what do you call these cells for? They are the, the cells meaning uh, the, the, the good ones that can reduce scarring and, and promote healing. Are they immune cells? Yeah, so at least the, the, the work that we've done recently suggests that there is, it's not a fibroblast, it's an immune cell that is floating around in that pericardial fluid in the sac outside the heart. And we know that there's immune cells that infiltrate through blood vessels and get into the heart tissue through the normal circulation. But what we found is that these cells are out just outside the heart, they don't go through blood vessels and they just migrate to the surface of the heart um, at the time of injury. They home to the site of injury and they seem to help prevent some of the fibrosis. So they may be a counter mechanism. So the fibroblasts may come in, create a whole bunch of scar tissue and you get these vascularized immune cells that create inflammation, which is important to remove that debris and clean up the area. And then these may be cells that come in later and shut it all down, but they may not effectively shut things down as much as necessary. And there may be patient differences in, in how well they're able to do that. So we believe that by better understanding these cells, we may be able to develop some therapeutics and therapies to address some of these problems. And what's important about that is it's pre, it's, it's a new cell, it's a whole new pathway, it's a whole new, anatomic envelope to deliver therapies to. So I'm excited about the potential of that because it's not something that's, you know, some people have tried to do for the last 50 years. It's brand new. Right, right. Yeah. So it sounds to me that, you know, sort of the optimum uh, intervention there, it's both about quantity and timing, right? So if I understand this correctly, Paul, there is sort of a immediate uh, scarring uh, to, to get out of the, the, the acute issue and then inflammation happens to sort of clean that place up and then immune cells start to act on that uh, to, to promote healing. So if I understand this correctly, Paul, is that they, so the question there is, you know, sort of the, the both the quantity uh, as well as the timing of those actions, they're all different actions, right? Yeah, it's, it's extremely complex. I mean, I think, I think we've underestimated and we, we tend to underestimate how dynamic and how complex all of these different pathways are and how much they interact with each other. Um, but I think we have an increased understanding, particularly over the last decade of how the heart repairs itself and the individual types of cells and, and how plastic they are, how dynamic they are. Um, and this is going to be really important to develop uh, new therapies, even something as simple as you know, um, drug therapies, which are the mainstay of treatment for many uh, cardiovascular diseases. If you look at the drug therapies that are actually improve mortality uh, in, in our patients and actually allow them to live longer, so a very, you know, beneficial effect, most of them seem to act through a fibrosis pathway of some sort. 
So there really is a lot of credence and validity to this idea that if we can better understand these healing pathways, especially the fibrosis pathways, and intervene in them at the right time, that we may be able to provide a lot of benefit to patients. Yeah, so I want to get into another paper. So, you know, the, it's entitled Acellular Bioscaffolds Redirect Cardiac uh, Fibroblasts and Promote Functional Tissue Repair in Rodents and Humans with Myocardial Injury. So this is really sort of uh, trying to remove the fibroblasts from the, from the site. So what we're doing with that work, so this is another big area of research for, for my research program, is we're really looking at how can we influence this fibrosis pathway and heal hearts, and, and how can we convince those scar-producing cells, those fibroblasts, to produce less scar and produce more microvessels, which would be uh, more adaptive and lend itself better to improving heart function. And the way that we're approaching that is kind of fun. We're um, using some tissue engineering approaches where we're taking some tissue from, and the one we're using comes from pigs. It actually comes from the pig intestine. And interestingly, the pig intestine is highly regenerative. Okay, it's highly vascularized and it's highly regenerative. And if we take that tissue and we remove all the cells, or at least the vast majority of the cells, and we create this acellular material, you would think, well, that's just, you know, it's a piece of uh, dead material, it's got no cells, that can't do anything. Well, lo and behold, something called the extracellular matrix, also known as the interstitium, or the connective tissue that holds all the cells together, we once believed that this was just a passive scaffolding and all the action was in the cells. But it turns out that that connective tissue, the ECM, we call it extracellular matrix, it is highly involved in signaling pathways. It actually tells the cells whether they should live, whether they should die, whether they should grow, whether they should expand and divide. It really dictates and regulates tissue structure and function. Mm. So what we're doing is we're taking from animals that regulatory matrix tissue and we're sewing it directly on the surface of the heart over top of where someone has a heart attack. And what that's doing, our research, and we've been studying this for over a decade, it seems to actually tell those fibroblasts, those scar producing cells to stop producing scar and start producing blood vessels. And so if we get the timing right, we may be able to actually coerce those pathways into a more adaptive mechanism. And that's what our data shows from various animal models. And even I've implanted this material um, at the time of bypass surgery in eight patients. And we did some serial imaging to show that we actually restored the microvasculature, which is really key because I can't create microvessels in the operating room. I can create big, large vessel inflow, but I can't do the microvessels. That's beyond the capabilities of surgery. So we need you know, novel techniques to do that. Yeah. So where does the tissue come from? You can get this type, you can get this ECM essentially from any tissue, right? You can get from human tissue, animal tissue, any type. Um, we, the one I'm using right now, uh, it comes from the pig intestine. Um, and that one is commercially available. And so I've been working with the company that uh, produces it. And, uh, but there's a whole host, like there's, this is a big, big field. And there's a lot of companies that are commercializing various, what we call acellular biomaterials. And I'm exploring a number of them because I don't know which is the best one yet. And it may turn out that as we understand these mechanisms, we may be able to develop um, with one of these companies, um, the very best material, the optimal material for this application. Hmm. So, so there is no matching problem. There, there is no rejection. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there can be some low-level inflammation to some of these materials, and there is some work being done to try to reduce that. But you know, interestingly. A, a low level of inflammation may actually be beneficial, right? Because if you're homing some of these immune and inflammatory cells to the material, those may also be beneficial in the healing process. So it's, it's a, again, it's one of these, is it adaptive? Is it maladaptive? It depends on timing. It's highly contextual. 
Uh, so those are things that we need to work out. You know, how much of a reaction is reasonable? Certainly there's some experience in uh, pediatric cases where they've implanted these materials and seen a lot of inflammation that was very negative. And that may be because, you know, in very, very young children, they have very robust immune systems. We may be able to get away with it to some extent in the older population where their immune system uh, tolerates a little bit more and um, is less robust. Yeah, sounds very promising. Sort of an optimization problem. <laughs> I, I yeah, want, exactly. Yeah, I want to jump into another uh, paper. So kryptonite bone cement uh, prevents pathologic external displacement. Um, so totally different. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, I'm a clinical heart surgeon and most of heart surgery is performed through what we call a sternotomy, meaning, you know, you get the cut through the breastbone. So we take a saw, we cut, we divide your entire breastbone and we get good exposure, good access to your heart and we can do our surgeries. And what's interesting about open heart surgery is that the results are just outstanding. When it first started, you know, let's say 40, 50 years ago, um, it was extremely dangerous and, um, you know, it was highly innovative, but very dangerous. And now it's become extremely routine where we help a lot of people. So now it's not about, will people live or die if they have heart surgery? It's more nuanced now about how do we make it more acceptable to patients? How can we get patients to recover faster, have less pain, and psychologically accept the fact that somebody like me is going to take a saw and cut them in half? <laughs> so... Yeah. What, what, what I've learned over the years is that patients are very fearful of this, right? And, and it really, sometimes it even prevents them from wanting to have life-saving open-heart surgery, which can be highly beneficial. So I started to think from surgical principles. So one surgical principle is that you should, you should leave a wound the same way you found it. So the way that you've opened a wound, you want to try to retain the structures and the anatomy as best you can. So it's, you want to be very stealth-like when you do surgery. You want to kind of go in and be as least traumatic as you can and leave everything. You know, it's like being a good house guest, right? You want to leave the, the bedroom uh, looking just as good as it was when you, when you came in as a guest. So using those principles, I started to think through this. And one of the big problems with the, the sternotomy or going through the breastbone is that it's a broken bone. So you can imagine that, you know, after heart surgery for six to eight weeks, because it takes that long for a broken bone to fuse, patients have a fair bit of pain, right? And we tell them, you know, be careful, don't lift over five pounds, you can't drive a car, you know, don't play golf, don't pick up your grandkids, you know, take it easy uh, until that bone heals. Hmm. And what I started to think, well, maybe, why don't we just fuse the breastbone right at the time of surgery? And there are ways to do that. You can use big metal plates and screws and all this kind of stuff. Very expensive. Um, uh, surgeons don't really like to use it. Patients don't love it. it um, not maybe the ideal way. Yeah. So I thought, what's a more biologic way? And I came across um, a company that was making a very novel bone cement. Hmm. And this bone cement allows the uh, bone cells to grow through the cement. Eventually, it, 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 within a, a couple of hours, it actually fuses the bone as like rock solid, and then it kind of biodegrades over time and the bone can heal through it. So this was being developed for orthopedic surgery and trauma surgery, and I actually contacted the company and said, hey, like, I really think we could use this in heart surgery. And they said, well, that's crazy, you know? <laughs> that's not what this is for, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, but I, you know, was persuasive and I convinced them to let me fool around with it a little bit. And we ended up doing a whole bunch of work all the way to the point of doing a randomized trial and showing this had marked benefits on improving patients' recovery. So what I find is that when I use this bone cement, patients uh, recover faster, they have less pain, their breathing is better, they don't need as much um, narcotic pain medicine, which, which can be a real problem because it can cause addiction and it can um, also cause a lot of confusion in the older population. And it's much more palatable. So the interesting thing is the psychology behind it. And patients just find that if they know their bone will be solid when they wake up from surgery, mm -hmm. they find this psychologically much more palatable. So 
Uh, the Gryptonite story has been really fun. It's been a great project. It's now evolved into a new product called Montage. So the product has been tweaked for this application and uh, we worked out some more kinks. I'm actually doing another randomized trial right now with the newer version of it and the results are excellent. So we anticipate that we'll be teaching other surgeons and talking more about it over the next couple of years. And I think we're going to see widespread adoption of this uh, technique. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're closing the chest the same way we did when heart surgery at the dawn of heart surgery, right? Just taking wires. So what many people don't know is how we do it. We take stainless steel wires and we basically run them around the bone and then we twist tie them like a garbage bag and we wait for the bone to heal. And obviously that is not the most innovative way to do things. And this has been an area that's been ripe for um, some innovations. So we're happy to fill that gap. Yeah, so th this is a very fast acting, Paul, that uh, the patient will feel, uh, you know, uh, the, the bone is sort of healed uh, very, very quickly in the case of the cement. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we can, the, the product itself is tunable. So, so we can decide basically how quickly we want it to cure and become solid, yeah. but definitely, you know, it doesn't now, it does take away all the early pain, right? Because, you know, you have some tubes coming out of your body and some other things. It doesn't take away the soft tissue inflammation, but it does take away the micro movement of the bone which in some cases can cause a lot of pain and discomfort. And even in extreme cases, we do see sometimes the bone comes apart where the wires actually pull through the bone and the patient will have a very unstable chest. And that can be a real, real problem trying to fix it and very uncomfortable for patients. So, so we're pretty enthusiastic that this is providing a lot of benefit. That's great news, yeah. I want to talk about a completely different subject. So you had a commentary with a couple of your colleagues, uh, the return on investment for cardiothoracic surgeon scientists, in which you say health research informs decision-making and promotes health, economic, and social prosperity. NIH uh, invests about $40 billion, uh, for health research each year. And, and you're looking at you know, uh, some of this, uh, what is sort of the return on investment uh, of that money, and you know this idea of uh, practicing surgeons uh, also spending some amount of their time uh, in the scientific innovation arena. Uh, what conclusions did you reach? Yeah, so so that paper is a commentary on a research paper that was published in the Journal of uh, Thoracics and, and Cardiovascular Surgery. So I sit on the editorial board, and I was asked to write an expert opinion on somebody else's research. And what that research did, it was a really nice study. They, they really tried to investigate whether, you know, the big question is, can a practicing surgeon participate at a high level in research? And should we give them money to do it? And not, I don't mean money to pay in their pocket, but money to fund their research ideas. Yeah. And, and I think it's long been sort of debated whether that's a useful enterprise. Like, should a surgeon just be um, a technician? You know, should they just focus on doing high-level technical surgery night and day, and that's it? Or should some surgeons, at least, do that and do research at the same time? Can they have an impact? Or should that research only be done by scientists or, you know, other people? And no one really knows the answer to that. My, I've always felt that surgeons should participate in research at some level. Um, and what this paper did is it analyzed, um, you know, I think it was over 15 years of funding, might have yeah. been 30 years, 30 years of funding from the NIH. So the NIH provides the largest envelope of funding for research, highly competitive. I mean, it's really hard to get NIH funding. They only fund the very best work. And they compared, the study compared what, what was the impact of the funding that went to the surgeons who did research versus non-surgeons who did research in the same field. And the field was actually heart transplantation, which is what started our conversation. Yeah. Um, and what they found was that indeed, the surgeon's research was just as impactful as non-surgeons. And, and that is an important message because we're seeing an erosion of support for surgeons who participate in research. And, and I think that's a tragedy because I think 
Uh, surgeons can play a unique role, bring a unique perspective to uh, the research world, particularly in the field of surgery. I mean, I think surgeons should do surgical research. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a controversial statement, but we have to fund them to do it. And um, the problem is that, you know, if you're looking at your return on investment, and you're, you probably know a lot more about this than I do, but, you know, we're looking at the value proposition here, right? So what are we putting in and then what are we getting out? And, you know, with surgeons, it, it's difficult to measure the academic mission, right? Like how do you, how do you actually measure the quality of research or the impact of research? And we have some metrics in place now, you know, over the years. I mean, I think we've gotten better at this where we look at, you know, how many times somebody's paper has been cited by other people. We look at the number of their publications. We have things like what we call impact factor, which tell you, you know, how good the publication is. So it'd be like, did you publish your article in the Wall Street Journal or did you publish it in, you know, the Beaver Town newsletter? Um, yeah. Kind of a different bar, right? Uh, so we have that same thing with our, our scientific journals. And basically, based on these measures, the surgeons uh, did quite well. So um, the bottom line here is that we have to continue funding academic surgeons. We have to um, look beyond the value proposition of them simply just doing surgery all the time, because that one's obvious, right? That's an easy thing to measure. Like surgeon A goes into the OR, does 100 surgeries, and saves 99 lives. Yeah, pretty easy, right? <laughs> uh, you know, there's no controversy there. But when surgeon A does, you know, 70 surgeries and then spends a third of his time in a laboratory, is that worthwhile, right? Is that the best, um, the best way to use that talent? Um, I would argue that it is, and I think the study supports that. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. You know, um, without knowing a lot about it, you know. Um, research has to be looked at both from a benefit perspective, obviously, but also when those benefits accrue to society. And so there is a timing component there. And so, you know, as some of your work demonstrates, uh, if you can take it into production, take it into the field a lot faster, right, you are actually actually doing this and you are really observing certain things that could substantially improve the procedure, it can get into the field a lot faster, right? Rather than, you know, somebody doing sort of uh, research in the lab. And so, so I, I fully agree with you. I think this has to be looked at, you know, when I was at a pharmaceutical company, I often felt that there isn't a lot of connection between uh, research and development in the pharma context. This was a long time ago. And the, and the clinical data and, and the clinicians in, in practice uh, doing some of these things, there was really no, no connection uh, between data coming from the field uh, to new, you know, new medications being researched and developed. And I think uh, increasingly, you know, that, that is a lot more important, I think. Yeah, I think you've made a really important point. I mean, this is the whole field of like, should we have clinician scientists, right? There's a whole class of an individual called a clinician scientist that's highly trained in both research and medicine and, and does some combination of both, right? And those people, you know, in my opinion, bring a very unique perspective to work and, and they, they can see the immediacy. They can sometimes connect the dots for something that's translational that others may not see. Yeah. And they can see the clinical need. They can see the clinical gap very well. And they can see the clinical feasibility very well. So really important to have these people um, mixed up with others too. And, and I think your point is well taken. You know, I personally believe that clinician scientists in industry should be working closely together. And traditionally, they've been siloed, and it was almost um, seen as very negative, right? If you're um, a world-class academic, what are you wasting your time talking to people in industry? You know, <laughs> you know, what are they? Are they paying you? You know, are they are they putting money in your in your pocket and funding your lab? Like, can't you get a real grant? You know, there's a there. It was seen as very negative, and I think we have to change that because I personally think that's how we're going to see the greatest and most rapid innovations. Um, Getting things from bench to bedside quickly is going to require 
clinical scientists working with the industry. And that's exactly what I do in my program. So people always say to me, well, why don't you start your own company? Why don't you create your own biomaterial? Well, why? I mean, it's <laughs> going to take me. They're already out there, right? And yeah. there, there are so many other aspects to it, the regulatory and the legal and, and the funding. I don't have time to do all those things. I mean, and they're not my skill set. Right. So I'm better to go out there. And what I do is I'm almost opportunistic that way as I actually – search them out and I find, hey, here, what a neat technology you have. Maybe I can apply it in a new way you never thought of to address a clinical gap in my field of expertise. And we're not doing that enough because we often see that these startups, they have a phenomenal technology. There's nothing wrong with their technology. It's just they apply it in the wrong area or they don't rigorously test it the right way and they don't get, um, you know, enough maybe clinician scientists to give them perspectives on how best to use it. Yeah. So that's where I see there's a there's a gap. Yeah, and I wondered, Paul, um, whether this goes all the way back to education too. Um, you know, we have the MD-PhD program. I don't know if it really caters to this idea. Perhaps even in the, you know, basic education level, there is sort of a different person you can educate. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a good point is how, you know, how we educate and we've had the MD PhD programs. Um, they're, they're good. There's limited uh, access to those programs. There's not a lot of people that do them and people are not as excited about doing it anymore. Um, you know, it's hard to get people in those programs because who wants to add more and more years to their training? I mean, this is a problem is that we've got our young people are getting into medical school so much later, so much more in debt, yeah. that how are you then gonna, you know what I mean? They basically need to become clinicians to pay their bills and pay off their debt. And um, they can't focus on things like academics. And the problem is that academics traditionally, how do you pay someone to do it? There's no, there's no funding, there's no money in many cases to provide someone the salary support that they need to take the, the time to do the work and, and the time is extremely uh, time consuming. So yeah. we got a lot of problems there. Um, I, I, I think that better training is required. And I also think that those programs have not been, they haven't rapidly evolved to be more cutting edge and more current in the sense of like, hey, like you can work with industry. I, I give, I've been giving some lectures to students in what's called our leaders in medicine program which yeah. are, you know, clinician scientist programs. And I'm trying to convince them that it's okay to do this kind of thing, right? And yes, there's pitfalls and you have to be careful uh, when you work with industry for various reasons, but there are ways to negotiate around that and there are a lot of benefits. So I'm trying to encourage that to happen, but I, I don't see a lot of people doing it at a high level. Yeah, yeah. I want to touch on one other area, Paul. So yeah, this is something else you've been looking at, the promise of precision cardiovascular surgery. Uh, so surgery to restore ventricular shape, size, and function may require more precision to determine which specific patients may benefit and when surgery should be optimally performed. Sort of another optimization problem, right? Yes, 100%. So, you know, I don't know how much you've heard about precision medicine, but it's becoming um, a very uh, popular uh, term. You're going to hear it. Uh, if you haven't heard it, you're going to people that are listening are going to hear it much more. And precision medicine is really about providing the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And I think sometimes in the community, people hear they think, well, don't you already do that? <laughs> you know, that doesn't sound very cutting edge. But it's more about understanding you as an individual. So be like running your genetic code and understanding that, hey, well, based on Gil's genetics, you know, aspirin isn't going to work for him. We better give him this other mild blood thinning, thinning drug. So it's matching, right, the right types of treatments that are we know are going to be impactful for you. Because, yeah. you know, working on, the, on averages and groups doesn't actually help individuals. So that's kind of where precision comes from. And it's really, it's really important in surgery because it's more about the decision-making about surgery, which I'm very interested in, not the technical part. So surgeons often focus very much on technique, uh, which is obviously important, critically important. And they spend most of their time trying to revise techniques. And in my opinion, the technical details are 
quite well established for many of the things we do, these are not as impactful as the timing and the decision making. Who should have surgery and when should they have surgery? And how much surgery should they have? How much of the blood vessels should you remove and replace with artificial tubing uh, versus in this guy versus the next guy? When should you do that? Um, those are tougher questions, right? And we don't have fantastic data to drive that. So where I think precision needs to happen is developing better tools, say, for example, with advanced imaging, with circulating biomarkers, by understanding people's genetics, and also by understanding the personalized aspects of care. What it matters to you as a person, right? What's important to you? What, what are your goals? Um, and this is, these are things that surgeons should be talking about with their patients, and I don't know that we do it um, enough or maybe not as well as we could. Um, and becoming a little bit more personalized with decision making. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna give you one example of you know surgeons don't really uh, and I talked about this a little bit in my TEDx talk. Surgeons don't really talk about when they say no or when they the best option is not to do surgery. You know we're very we're doers, right? <laughs> you know we 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 love doing surgery. We want to do it. Um, and sometimes the best thing for a patient is to say no and say, you know what, surgery is not the right thing for you and maybe to accept the natural history of your disease. And in fact, I just got a letter from a patient from uh, two years ago when I had met with a family and it was an older patient and I had advised them not to have surgery. I, I could do it. Technically, it could be done. But I felt that it wasn't really, as I got to know them and we spent a fair bit of time really understanding each other and and got a better feeling for what their wishes were and goals and that sort of thing. And I advised them not to have the surgery. Well, I got this letter and the wife let me know that her husband had passed away finally after two years. Mm -hmm. And she was so grateful that they made that decision and that they had this dialogue with me and that we didn't do the surgery because he was able to end up doing a whole bunch of things in those two years, very special things to for his life and for his family. Um, and they were so grateful that they had that opportunity. And with the surgery that they might not have if they had a bad outcome. So it was really a nice validation of, you know, to me how, um, how important these decisions are, right? And how we have to be very precise. Right, right. Yeah, I, I want to uh, hear from you, Paul, um, you know, more on the practice, practice side of this, you know, how does it feel when you go into an operating theater every day and, you know, how does it, uh, you, you know, how does it feel when you go through that procedure? Um, you know, clearly you have gone through uh, with the patient and the patient's family, um, all the discussions you might have had. Uh, it's a very um, risky procedure. Uh, I don't know what the success rates are, something like 97% or so. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, yeah, depending on the, you know, the individual patient, but by and large, 98% of the time for most cardiac surgery, we get a great result. And um, so it's a real success story. But, you know, though you will have every surgeon, no matter how good they are, they will have a handful of patients who don't make it every year. And it's very difficult. And no one expects that, right? Everyone expects to do very well. The patient expectations are extremely high. Yeah. The way it feels is, you know... You know, there are obviously good days and bad days in, in heart surgery, but fortunately the good days outnumber the bad days. And it feels incredible. Like it really is an, an intoxicating uh, specialty hmm. when you're able to spend all of the years to learn how to do something so highly technical yeah. and so highly complex. And then when you actually apply that in an individual circumstance and take somebody who was feeling terrible and really had no quality of life, and turn them around and give them their life back, both quality and length of life. And, you know, they're so appreciative. Like I have so many patients that I see in follow-up in my clinic and, you know, it's usually at the end of the follow-up and the encounter, they kind of pause and they're sort of looking at me and they're looking deep into my eyes and they almost get a little teary and mm -hmm. some are better with their words than others, but they kind of want to say thank you and you could just see the gratefulness, right? Um, and it's something very special that 
I think every surgeon really, it's what drives them, it really does. I mean, I think people think surgeons are very egocentric and, you know, you know, we, you have to be to some extent, right? You have to have the confidence to be able to do something like this. Yeah. But that is really what drives it. it. It is so, when it goes well, like you feel like you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof. You feel like a million bucks. I mean, there's certainly when I drive home after operating all day and the patients have done well, it's the best feeling in the world. It, it's really so wonderful. But when things go wrong, it's very tough too, right? Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> we're trained, we're trained to take full responsibility no matter what, right? Even if you didn't make a mistake, you did everything right, but the patient had a poor outcome. We're trained as surgeons to internalize that and to take full responsibility. And um, that's the moral hazard of the work that we do. And it's hard on us. It's, it's very difficult. But at the same time, I think it's really important because if you start pointing fingers somewhere else and you don't internalize and take responsibility for the outcome, then you'll never continuously improve and you'll never commit to excellence and quality. So it's this fine line between balancing you know, these things and certainly it could consume you if you didn't handle it well. Um, so surgeons have to be very um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically strong. Yeah, yeah. And no, the beauty of the uh, specialty is that it's very much driven by experience and expertise, right? So every day, every day you're getting, you're becoming better <laughs> in your art. Uh, you know, every time you do it, um, you pick up, you know, uh, better ways to do it. Uh, and, um, you know, I want to ask you in conclusion, you know, if you if you look forward five years, um, there are a lot of technologies, as you know, that is around now in personalized medicine. For example, um, we deploy turnkey AI systems in primary care, behavioral health, and specialty hospitals. You know, we use EMR data, those types of things. And so, artificial intelligence is improving. There is a lot of um, lot of innovation, robotics. So how do you see uh, five years from now in your, in your specialty, uh, how things are going to be? Yeah, I think you've hit on um, what's very likely going to be uh, the big bang in the future. And that's going to be harnessing big data. Yeah. Um, you know, we're seeing that right now at, in my province of Alberta. We're implementing um, a huge um, electronic medical record system. And we're linking in uh, our scientists and um, our clinicians to be able to harness the power of that data. And in fact, we we're doing the same thing where we've got um, experts with artificial intelligence and machine learning, and we're trying to link all of our data together. So our imaging data, our outcomes data, our administrative data, our costing data. And I think once we do that, it's gonna be a huge data set um, but it's going to really empower us. Um, and we're really interested right now in creating this sort of end-to-end -end roadmap of taking data and, and driving the value proposition of medicine. And we have to do that because, you know, at least in Canada, in a public health system, yeah. we have to deal with um, extreme cost pressures. And we really have to look at where the value is. And this, this, I think, is going to be really exciting um, over the next, you know, five to 10 years. We're going to see a lot of advances in this area. And what's really cool, too, is it's going to link to um, peripherals like your iPhone. And I think we're seeing the, a lot of sensors coming out now. You, know, you can get an ECG on your iPhone now. That's very high quality. I think we're going to start to see incorporation of sensors into the community, into individual patients. And as we harness that data, that's going to be really great because a lot of our data is, you know, when you're in the hospital, right? Obviously, we monitor you. We collect a lot of data when you're in that acute care facility. But that's only a snapshot, really, of your trajectory and your health. So imagine if we could harness all the power of continuous data from you as a person all the time, right? And we know what's happening to your heart rate variability at various times and your blood pressure and with various other sensors, um, really exciting stuff that's going to happen. And that's what's going to enable uh, precision medicine to, uh, to a high level, I think, is by harnessing the power of that data. And, you know, the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning is really exciting too, because once you have all that data, the only way to really get something out is you have to be able to know what variables you think might be the most important. 
But of course, with artificial intelligence, it can analyze the data and tell us what are the most important variables, things we never would have thought of, or connections between the data that we never would have thought of asking. So that's a really powerful technology that's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, just like medicine, other industries too, what we see is that when there is a lot of different types of data, so, you know, just like in medicine now, imaging, uh, EMR, other types of data, um, be not that good actually assimilating large amounts of different types of data. And so that's where AI could potentially help. And in, in, in precision surgery, you also mentioned, you know, sort of an um, optimal timing issue, right? So there is a yes or no decision like you described for that one patient, but also if it's a yes, there is also a question of timing. And so, so if you are picking up data almost on a continuous basis uh, with uh, wearables and home health type systems, those systems could potentially, you know, tell us uh, what the right timing might be as well, I would imagine. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, say, for example, you had a patient that had um, an aneurysm that we're following in it, and we weren't sure, you know, when should we do that prophylactic surgery to repair that aneurysm so it doesn't burst in the future? The patient's fine. They're living a normal life. Well, maybe if we had some sensors that told us, well, you know, every time this guy goes to work, his blood pressure starts skyrocketing and the strain on that aorta goes sky high and he's not able to manage that. Maybe we better fix this guy's aneurysm sooner because he's at higher risk than this other guy whose same data set says that the wall stress on the aorta and his blood pressure are normal when he's at work. So little things like that, right, that could make a huge difference in terms of our outcomes and save the healthcare system enormous amounts of money too, right? Because the way that we um, end up wasting a lot of money is applying the wrong therapy to the wrong person at the wrong time, right? I mean, it's extremely expensive. I mean, even if, even if they don't get the benefit of the surgery or the therapy, whatever it is, yeah. it's extremely expensive. And then God forbid they have a poor outcome, yeah. right? They have a complication, they have a stroke, they have an infection, you know? enormous cost to the, system, to the system to deal with the consequences, the adverse consequences of medical care. And this is where I think you see a lot of this data and talk about medical error. You know, I'm not sure, you know, when I see that data that it's so much human error versus just the consequences of treating lots of people and not being precise. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, this has been great, Paul. And uh, yeah, thanks for spending time with me uh, during your uh, vacation. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything that you're doing in this area. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really honored to be part of this and um, yeah, look forward to connecting you with you again in the future. Take thank care. You.